Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. You know, Clark, I don't know if I can take it anymore. How much mucus can the human head produce in the course of a day? I have blown my nose more times today and the last several days. I, I, is my head inordinately large? Can you? T- is it larger than normal? It's just incredible to me. I'm trying to speak while the pressure in my face changes from one nostril to the other. I'm trying not to be conspicuous. I'm hitting the cough button, and that makes more noise than the cough itself would make. I'm telling you, I'm just at the end of my tether. What's too bad is we didn't have a video camera so people could see the whole ordeal you just went through. <laughs> you know, I'm trying And to... I'm so glad I got to see it. Well, you know, I turn my back so the Clark doesn't have to see me blowing my nose 50 times. And it takes about 50 times. Then once I'm finished, I have, you know, bottles and bottles of hand sanitizer. And that's not to mention the Lysol that I spray the room down with. And then I also have the Clorox disinfecting wipe. So I'm wiping everything down so I don't pass along the disease and pestilence that I'm spreading throughout the office. There I tell are so you, many fumes in there. If you aren't sick, you'll die just walking into the well, room. Well, you can't breathe in the room, but you're not going to yeah. get this particular thing. So I'm doing the best that I can. All of that said... Being a broadcast professional, we're going to just keep going. And if you hear a peculiar noise along the way, it might be me pressing the cough button because there have been several times in the last few days where I've pressed the cough button, trying to time it so that it sounds like I'm just pausing for drama when I'm actually coughing up a lung. Um, Or you can hear the kind of the crunchy sound when I hit the... uh, uh, the button that makes kind of a peculiar... Maybe you don't hear it on the air, but we can oh, hear no, it. Oh, no, you can, you hear, can it. hear it. Yeah. yeah. So that's me pressing the cough button, trying to be inconspicuous. Um, but again... How's that working? <laughs> well, I'm still breathing. Mm. Although I don't know how much longer, because the first break, I'm sure I'll turn my back once again, and I'll um, try to shrink my inordinately large head that's producing more mucus than should be humanly possible. So that by the time I come back, I'll sound as normal as as possible. We're going to sacrifice an entire forest today into a Kleenex box or ten just well, so that you can get through the show. absolutely true. Because you don't want to hear me sniffling throughout the, the program. That would be even worse, I think. Mm. Yeah. I, I sniffled my way through Memorial Day. I felt so bad, but, you know, I was cooking the meal and everyone was at our house and you couldn't stop every three minutes. I can only do, do that you, on you the air while I'm working. Cooking... <laughs> While you were sick like that? Well, I, I, uh, my hands are, you know, my hands, the flesh is almost completely burnt away from hand sanitizer and washing and all of that stuff. So they're dry and cracked and peeling. I need to be featured in some sort of a hand lotion uh, commercial for big money because, you know, look at that. Look at it. You can hardly tell that their hands are like claws of some sort of creature because I've been overwashing. And then, you know, I'm being very careful about. Um, what I'm doing while I'm handling food in terms of breathing and where I'm telling you, it's just been a tough ordeal. What more can I say? I've already said way too much. Hmm. But again, being a broadcast professional, okay, I don't believe that either, but at least they pay me to do this. So technically, I suppose I could say I'm a broadcast Is there anything else going on in the world today? Maybe oh, we should I, just move on to There might be that. something. Something about Mueller or something. He might have spoken. He wasn't mind. sick when he was talking. No, he wasn't sick. But everyone's sick since then because <laughs> the same words were heard, heard by everyone, but everyone's retreated to their corner and interpreted it in a way that really affirms what they believe um, it should happen next. So that's, you know, par for the course. 
Uh, in any event, we are going to move on to other more productive things that relate to what's going on in the world outside of this studio. I'm going to take my cracked and peeling hands um, that look like some kind of a reptile because of the hand sanitizer I've been using and overusing and move on to look at some of the headline news. Also, you should know that we're going to talk with uh, Romina Bocha. It's, actually, it's, it's uh, Romina Bocha is the correct pronunciation. But the, the pressure in my head is shifted, so I can't uh, be held accountable. Anyway, she's the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. A second Republican has said, no, we're not going to pass this disaster aid bill. She'll explain why that has been the case, and given the fact that uh, the majority of the House is still out on recess. They got 10 days for Memorial Day. What did we get? We got the day... Uh, Anyway, they're not back in full until Monday. She'll explain what that's all about. We're also going to hear from Jerry Pattengale. Uh, He's the author of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections of the Past, Prospects for the Future. And I should mention a Beaverton pastor has been named the uh, president of his denomination. We'll share more about that later in the program as well. All of that in the second hour of today's program. But first... A look at some of the headline news following President Trump's decision to allow the declassification of key Russian records at Attorney General William Barr's discretion. By the way, he has yet to uh, to do that. Former Trump campaign aide Carter Page says that um, his contact with an alleged FBI informant, Stephen Halper, at a pivotal period in the Russia probe was more extensive than previously reported. Separately, he it has been learned that congressional investigators have been renewing their focus on a text message sent nine days before the government's Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act application, that's the FISA warrant application, to monitor Page, in which then-FBI agent Peter Strzok and FBI lawyer Lisa Page question who's playing games, scared, and covering. Those are words that they chose. Well, the text in question was released last year, um, but recently confirmed the uh, names hidden beneath the redactions. They included a senior FBI lawyer as well as the FBI agent Gata. G-A-E-T-A, I have no idea, believed to be a principal handler for the dossier and its author, British ex-spy Christopher Steele. Now, you couldn't make this stuff up for a novel, and yet it's unfolding before our eyes. Well, in an op-ed in the Washington Post yasterday former FBI Director James Comey lambasted the president. No news there. Anyway, his claim that uh, he and his agency committed treason during the Russia investigation, noting that although it was tempting to ignore the president, he was acting as a liar who doesn't care what damage he does to vital ins- institutions. Uh, end quote. There was no corruption. There was no treason. There was no attempted coup. There are uh, those are lies and the dumb lies at that. There were uh, just good people trying to figure out what was true under unprecedented circumstances, Comey went on to write. Well, this fiery words come as the administration ramped up its investigation into the Russia probe's origins. By the way, there's an election in 2020. We may see if it puts an end to all of this or just exacerbates the whole thing. President Trump yesterday, last night to be more precise, approved a disaster declaration in Kansas at the request of the governor making federal aid available to that state after a tornado destroyed multiple homes and left several injured. The National Weather Service declared a tornado emergency for the area as the storm was approaching Interstate 70 near the Kansas Speedway, which hosts NASCAR races. Douglas County Sheriff's Department spokeswoman Jen Hethcote told the Lawrence Journal World, the local paper, that 11 people were taken to the hospital with injuries, including one with serious injuries. Several homes throughout the county sustained damage according to the department. And lawyers for a Navy SEAL accused of killing an ISIS prisoner of war in Iraq in 2017 
uh, want the case thrown out because of alleged prosecutorial misconduct that include withholding evidence and conducting surveillance on the defense. Attorneys for Special Operations Chief Edward Gallagher plan to ask a military court today in San Diego to dismiss the case or remove the prosecutor and possibly have the judge himself step aside. The motion comes with Gallagher's trial less than two weeks away and with mounting pressure from the defense. Gallagher's lawyers say that they disclose that uh, prosecutors planted tracking a software in emails sent to the defense team and a journalist that may have violated attorney client privilege and other constitutional rights. More headlines when we return. We'll also tell you more about what Mr. Mueller had to say, expressing that he hopes this is the last time he has to address all of this. He's closing the office and retiring. Do you think that'll be the end of it? Oh, would that it uh, could be. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, did I mention that I spilled an entire glass of red beverage on my pants before the show started? Just another bright moment in the preparation for the Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, Romina Bacha will join us later. We're going to talk about the uh, House deciding, well, according to one member, not to move forward with their uh, disaster relief. We'll explain why and what that means. We're also going to hear from Jerry Pattengale, author of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections of the Past, Prospects for the Future. Well, Special Counsel Robert Mueller said he found insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy involving the Trump campaign, but didn't reach a conclusion on whether President Donald Trump obstructed justice. If we had uh, if we had had confidence the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so, Mueller said. Well, that was about as clear as mud. What exactly are you saying? This was a statement that he um, uh, offered earlier today at the Justice Department, where he announced he was ending his Russia probe and shutting down his office. Democrats in Congress demand that he testify. Mueller said he won't provide any information not already in his report, hoping perhaps against hope that he won't have to speak on the matter again. That might be somewhat naive, but nonetheless, good luck, Mr. Mueller, with that. Well, controversial author Michael Wolff's upcoming book, Siege, Trump under fire reportedly claims that Robert Mueller drew up an obstruction of justice indictment against President Trump. But a spokesperson for Mueller said the claim was wildly inaccurate. Speculation that China could use its dominance in rare earth minerals as a weapon in the trade war intensified after a Chinese official warned that products made from the materials should not be used against China's development. And a spate of decisions handed down by the nation's high court yesterday left room for cheers and jeers from both the right and the left, continuing a trend of judicial independence that flies in the face of expectations that Justice Brett Kavanaugh's appointment tipped the scale of justice firmly to the right. Still early days. We'll see what happens. A new uh, Mexico town issued a cease and desist order telling a private group building a half mile of border wall to stop construction, saying we build the walls permits weren't in order. The group, which was 80% of the way done with the section of the wall, has stopped work in order to solve the snafu. And in a stinging reproach to Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her cohorts who scuttled the deal by which Amazon would have built its headquarters in Queens, Ocasio-Cortez's district, Amazon is reputedly going to place its headquarters in Manhattan instead. And in controversial implicit bias trading, New York City's public school educators have been told to focus on black children over white children. I would love it if educators would focus on children who have needs 
But that's the time that we're living in. The World Health Organization will no longer categorize being transgender as a mental disorder after a major resolution to amend its health guidelines was approved earlier this month. And a biological male who identifies as a transgender woman won an NC2A national championship over the Memorial Day weekend. Being a former athlete from the University of Oregon competing in track and field, it would be extremely frustrating to me personally and to women's sports in general to know that a biological male competed against biological females and, of course, took the championship, which will virtually be the case uh, in almost every case. I would say all, but I want to leave room for an exception. Well, Robert Mueller in, uh, oh, I should mention just a couple of things here on this day. In 1453, a Turkish army led by Mohammed um, Il captures Constantinople and brings an end to the Byzantine Empire. There's a lull in the conversation. You can bring that up again. 1453. 1953 on this day, Mount Everest is conquered by Edmund Hillary of New Zealand and Tenzing Norgay of Nepal, becoming the first climbers to reach the summit. Now, my guess is... Uh, Nepalese had climbed that summit before, but Tensing is named number two because he wasn't European. But nonetheless, this was the first time the climbers reached the summit that um, Europeans acknowledge. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan on this day and Soviet leader Mikhail S. Gorbachev opened their historic summit in Moscow. And on this day in 2015, One World Observatory opens at the top of One World Trade Center in New York City. Of course, that no longer um is a beacon over the city. It's been replaced. Well, Robert Mueller, in his only public remarks on the Russia investigation since being appointed special counsel, uh, using, I think, uh, extraordinary discipline, said his team did not have the option to charge President Trump with a crime while indicating he does not plan to testify before Congress. Speaking from the Justice Department this morning, he announced the closing of his office, detailed the findings of the Russian investigation, underscoring that there was not sufficient evidence to charge a conspiracy with regard to whether members of the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government during the 2016 presidential election. But Mueller did not mince words on his inquiry into whether the president obstructed justice. Quoting Mueller, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said that we did not determine whether the president did commit a, pro- a crime. Mueller explained longstanding Justice Department policy, which states that a sitting president cannot be charged with a crime. Charging the president with a crime was not an option we could consider, Mueller explained, adding that it would be unfair to accuse someone of a crime when there could be no court resolution of the charge, end quote, leaving a lot of room for speculation. Was there evidence and you just didn't pursue it because you didn't have the authority? He went on to say the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse the president of wrongdoing. He echoed his report, which states that Congress may apply obstruction laws to the president's corrupt exercise of the powers of office, according um, accords rather with our constitutional system of checks and balances and the principle that no person is above the law. We concluded that we would not reach a determination one way or the other about whether the president committed a crime, Mueller added. That is the office's final position. Well, minutes after he finished delivering his remarks, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jared Nadler issued a statement vowing that Congress would, in fact, probe allegations of obstruction against the president. No big announcement there. That's already been 
uh, the goal. Given that special counsel Robert Mueller was unable to pursue criminal charges against the president, it falls to Congress to respond to the crimes, lies and other wrongdoing by President Trump. And we will do so, Nadler said in a statement. No one, not even the president of the United States, is above the law. Now, Nadler had claimed early on that he had incontrovertible evidence that the president had, in fact, engaged in this unlawful conduct. He has yet to make that uh, that public, and many are suggesting that he's lost credibility, unless, of course, he does make whatever he knows and didn't present to the Mueller investigation uh, public. Nadler's panel, which is already leading several Trump-focused investigations, would be the official congressional committee to lead any potential impeachment proceedings. But the president maintained his innocence and tweeted, nothing changes from the Mueller report. There was insufficient evidence, and therefore, in our country, a person is innocent. The case is closed. Thank you. Well, would that it would be quite that simple. Mueller was appointed by former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein on the 17th of May, way back in 2017. During his remarks, he outlined the scope of his nearly two-year investigation. I am speaking out today because our investigation is complete. The Attorney General has made the report on our investigation largely public. We are formally closing the Special Counsel's office. And as well, I'm resigning from the Department of Justice to return to private life. The appointment order directed the office to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. This included investigating any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. And he added that the order also authorized us to investigate actions that could obstruct the investigation. We conducted that investigation and we kept the office of the acting attorney general apprised of the progress of our work. Meanwhile, he defended Attorney General uh, Bill Barr and his handling of the report, saying, We conducted an independent criminal investigation and reported the results to the Attorney General. The Attorney General then concluded that it was appropriate to provide our report to Congress and the American people. He said that he requested that only portions of the report be released, but that Barr preferred to make the entire report public all at once. A move Mueller said he and the special counsel team appreciate. I do not question the attorney general's good faith in that decision, Mueller said. Labar has come under intense scrutiny over his handling of the report. The House Judiciary Committee earlier this month voted to hold him in contempt after he failed to comply with the subpoena to turn over an unredacted version of the report and its underlying documents and evidence to the committee. The president then asserted executive privilege in a bid to protect those files from release, which the law already prevents from being made public because of information contained in it uh, that was redacted by the attorney general. So if you were hoping for and anticipated that this would resolve the issues that are uh, yet being debated around the report and the conduct of the candidate and now president of the United States, it was wishful, perhaps wistful thinking, but no, it will continue. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I went that whole break without having to blow my nose. This is truly remarkable. Perhaps I'm on the mend. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi walked a fine line today as she tried to assure party colleagues that lawmakers in the House will continue looking into impeaching President Trump while advocating against rashness. She's very concerned, having been there during the Clinton era and seeing the backlash against Republicans, she's very concerned that that may also happen with the Democrats. And impeaching the president, according to polls, isn't that popular across the country with the rank and file voters. So she's trying to walk a fine line. Um, She spoke in San Francisco just hours after exiting special counsel Robert Mueller 
uh, made a statement recapping his investigation. We want to do what's right and what gets results, uh, Pelosi said. And I think an emphasis on what gets results. We're legislating, we're investigating, and we're litigating, she said. She added that everybody wants justice, everybody wants the president to be held accountable, end quote. Well, Pelosi had been... um, Uh, in a bind ever since a redacted version of Mueller's report was made public in April, clearing the president and his uh, campaign of any collusion with Russian officials, but leaving it to Congress to decide if Trump had obstructed justice. Well, you may interpret it that way. Did was it left to Congress to make that determination or is the issue essentially uh, one to be left behind disagreement, depending on your uh, political perspective? Uh, since the release of the report, many leading Democrats in both the House and the Senate have called for impeachment proceedings to be brought against Trump, with those um, uh, calls only getting louder today. And, of course, um, several of the leading presidential contenders on the Democrat side are calling for that very thing. But Pelosi having a long view and an understanding of uh, history is a bit more reluctant. Uh, we'll see who wins, who the speaker actually is with regard to uh, investigating and ultimately impeaching the president. Well, I'm not going to even go into that. I mentioned earlier that the president um, approved the disaster declaration in Kansas at the request of the governor, making federal aid available to the state after a tornado touched down in Kansas City. We're going to talk later in the five o'clock hour with Romina Bacha about um, the disaster bill that has been pending in Congress. It passed um, last week before the holiday in the Senate, but was uh, prevented from passing twice in the House. We'll explain what happened and why there are at least two members, if not more, of the Senate, or excuse me, of the Republican side of the Senate who are saying no, or excuse me, the House, who are saying we need to wait for the full House and then there needs to be a debate preceding this vote. We'll uh, bring that uh, to your attention in my conversation with her. Meanwhile, the Oregon Senate suspended its rules last Thursday to rush a vote on Democratic leaders' plan to rein in public employees' employers' uh, rapid increasing pension costs. It was Senate Bill 1049, sponsored by Senate President Peter Courtney and House Speaker Tina Kotick. It passed 16 to 12. Republican lawmakers made the difference. Two of them voted in favor of the bill, while two potential Republican no votes were absent. A House vote uh, has not been scheduled. But, of course, this is very controversial among those who are eligible for PERS and those who are trying to balance the Oregon books. The bill does nothing to address the pension system's 27 $7 billion deficit and three quarters of the bill's projected cost savings, about $1.2 billion to $1.8 in the 2021-23 budget cycle, comes from extending the minimum payment schedule on the deficit by eight to 10 years. So it's not uh, really resolving the major issues. Almost all of Thursday's floor debate uh, focused on the bill's provision to cut employee uh, retirement benefits. The plan would redirect a portion of the retirement contributions employees currently make to a supplemental 401k-like savings plan. Instead, some of those contributions, about 2.5% of uh, pay for employees hired before the 28th of August 2003, and 0.75% of employees hired after that would go into an account that would um, support pension benefits. Well, Oregon is one of only two states that doesn't require employee contributions to its pension plan. The average pension contribution in states where employees are also eligible for Social Security, as is the case in Oregon, is 6% of pay. A business-backed group that has filed ballot measures that would require a 6% employee contribution to the pension fund. And we'll likely have the opportunity to vote on that at some point in the future. Meanwhile, Oregon's cap and trade bill is moving toward approval for good or for 
ill. Oregon's um, proposal passed out of the legislative committee on a party line vote on Friday, the 17th, setting it up for the next landmark piece of legislation to pass in the 2019 session. It's a uh, future is still unclear. It's now one step closer to the desk of Governor Kate Brown, who this week signed the student or last week, the Student Success Act into law. If cap and trade were to pass as well, it would give her two landmark wins within months of her reelection. Wins, according to some interpretation, a great loss for Oregon, according to others. And that would be my perspective. Some of the lesser known bills headed for the governor's desk. House Bill 2519, which the Senate passed unanimously, requires the state's community colleges, colleges and universities that offer bachelor's degrees and accept state financial aid to adopt a written policy on hazing. Another and unpleasant consequence of natural disasters, especially landslides, is that they can sometimes dislodge and expose people who have been laid to rest. Senate Bill 227 gives permission to uh, cemetery authorities to reinter and temporarily store human remains that have been swept up by a storm or other natural disaster. House Bill 2089 makes people who haven't fully repaid an outstanding payday loan or title loan ineligible for a new one. If somebody needs a $600 loan, they would simply uh, lend them that $600 uh, exp- uh, says one lawmaker explaining that the proposal is intended to prevent stacking of multiple loans, which run up more fees and create financial risk. House Bill 2353 rather creates penalties for government agencies that don't comply with Oregon's public records law. The bill gives district attorneys the power to order a public entity to pay the person requesting records a $200 penalty if he or she determines that they're taking too long to respond to a records request, and the public entity doesn't qualify for an exemption. Then there's the farm breweries. Oregon's land use laws say that only certain non-farm uses are allowed to, on land zoned for farming. In recent years, the legislature has allowed wine and cider makers to brew and serve beverages on farms. This bill, Senate Bill 287, would allow small beer breweries on hop farms. And um, another bill, Senate Bill 358, been practicing law in Oregon since the Johnson administration. Well, under this bill, you may have to pay annual bar membership dues again. The Oregon State Bar is currently prohibited from charging dues to people who have been admitted to the bar for 50 years or more. Uh, Two years ago, a total eclipse brought tons of visitors to Oregon towns inside the path of uh, totality, as it was uh, called. In response to the frenzy, the Senate on Thursday passed House Bill 2790, requested by Representative Brian Clem to allow counties to require permits for outdoor mass gatherings. Speaking on the Senate floor, Senator Cliff Bentz of Ontario seemed put upon by the influx of stargazers two summers ago. You may all recall several years ago we had an eclipse, he said. One of the results was tens of thousands of people from the Willamette Valley flooding into the previously pristine lands of eastern Oregon, wreaking havoc and worse. This bill is an attempt to give the counties the authority to manage these gatherings better and collect adequate permit fees. And Oregon State Senator Jackie Winters has died. Uh, Senator Winters was the first African-American Republican elected to the Oregon legislature. According to House Speaker Tina Kotek, Winters, who was 82, uh, has died. Kotek made the announcement on the floor of the House uh, today and called for a moment of silence. Senator Winters, so who was reelected in the 2018 election to represent the Salem area, had been ill with cancer and had been absent from the legislature for some time. Again, she was the first African-American Republican elected to the Oregon legislature. And at age 82, Oregon State Senator Jackie Winters has died.
Well, on Tuesday, the Supreme Court of the United States made a much-awaited ruling on state abortion laws. The decision keeps requirements in place that remains of aborted babies in Indiana be buried or cremated. Unfortunately, abortion sought due to a baby's gender, race, ethnicity, or potential disability will be allowed to continue. At the same time, more than 100 Oregonians lobbied in the state capitol in favor of the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Says Lois Anderson, the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, Oregon does not have even the most basic protections for developing children in uh, in place legally. Abortion is legal until the moment of birth. Abortion providers are not required to treat babies who are born alive during an abortion procedure with even a bare modicum of respect, let alone transfer them to hospitals. A pro-life advocate from Louisiana spoke at Together We Advocate 2019 and shared her story of being born alive during an abortion. She was just under 27 weeks gestational age. The abortion provider wanted to leave her to die. Her mother took her to a hospital and surrendered her under the state's safe haven law. The Supreme Court was right to allow the law to stand, requiring respectful treatment of human remains. Anderson went on to say the court chose to push the pause button on the other provisions of the Indiana law, which you might recall uh, one Justice Thomas suggested was only a postponement of what inevitably would be a decision that would have to be made by the U.S. Supreme Court. 45 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, we're going to look at the disaster bill that the House... Well, they didn't pass. We'll explain what the holdup was and why it may be important. We'll also talk with Jerry Pattengale. He's the author of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections of the Past, Prospects for the Future. All of that in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. While a resounding multi-agency failure led to the deadly 2017 Amtrak train derailment, investigators revealed as part of a sprawling autopsy of the accident that spread uh, blame far and wide with those operating the train, those training the operators, those in charge of making sure the entire operation was safe. The National Transportation Safety Board said Amtrak Cascades Train 501 was going more than twice the speed limit around a dangerous um, curve on the t- December the 18th, 2017, when it derailed on an overpass over Interstate 5 in DuPont, Washington. And the engine and four cars plummeted onto the highway, striking eight vehicles. Three people on board the train were killed, while 57 passengers and crew members were injured, along with eight people on the highway below. Could this accident have been prevented? The answer is a resounding yes. That according to NTSB Chairman Robert Sumwalt uh, in an announcement of the findings. Federal investigators said the crash happened after the engineer lost track of where he was on the route and was going 78 miles per hour when he hit a 30-mile-per-hour curve. But instead of blaming the engineer, the NTSB cast a wide net that included the various agencies that constructed and operated the line. It set up the engineer to fail, Sumwalt said. Well, investigators took, um, took aim at the transit agency Sound Transit for not sufficiently mitigating the danger of the sharp bend, Amtrak for not better training the engineer, the Washington State Department of Transportation for not ensuring the route was safe before greenlighting a passenger train, and the Federal Railroad Administration for using rail cards beneath regulatory standards. I'm just amazed at the amount of failure that goes along here, says the NTSB Vice Chairman Bruce Landsberg uh, at the uh, hearing, according to the Seattle Times. We have five or six or seven different organizations that all say safety is their primary responsibility. And yet nobody seems to be responsible. 
Well, a biological male who identifies as a transgender woman won the NC2A National Championship over Memorial Weekend. Franklin Pierce University runner CeCe Telfer won the Division II women's 400-meter hurdles on Saturday. By the way, I did the 400-meter hurdles for Oregon, besting the second-place finisher by more than a second. Telfer is the first student-athlete in Franklin Pierce history to collect an individual national title, the university announced. It was tough conditions out here with the wind and the heat over the last three days, but as she has over the last six months, CeCe proved herself to be tough enough to handle it. That's a quote from Coach Zach Emerson in the uh, press release. Today is a, was a microcosm of her entire season. She was not going to let anything slow her down. I've never met anybody as strong as her mentally in my entire life, uh, the coach went on to say. Well, Telfer's victory came less than two hours after taking fifth place in the 100-meter hurdles. Outsports, a pro-LGBT sports website, touted Telfer uh, as a trans athlete who doesn't win every time. Well, Telfer previously ran a variety of events uh, for Franklin Pierce's men's team, during most of which time he went by the first name Craig, according to school records. Telfer competed for FPU's men's track team as recently as January of 2018, according to published meet results from the Middlebury Winter Classics in Vermont. Telfer had um, started using the name CeCe at that point while still competing for the men's team. NC2A policy is that male athletes who identify as transgender can compete on women's teams if they suppress their testosterone levels for a full calendar year. They're not measured to determine if they're at least equivalent to what a woman uh, would be limited by. Otherwise, so-called mixed teams, which have both males and females, can compete in the men's division, but not in the women's division, according to the NC2A rules. Um, Telfer's uh, victory is just the latest instance of male athletes who identify as female entering and then winning female athletic events. Two male runners have dominated girls' high school track in Connecticut, which a female competitor described as demoralizing. Rachel McKinnon, a biological male who identifies as transgender, won a Women's World Championship cycling event in October. Again, demoralizing for women. Well, it's 3 a.m., you know what your iPhone is doing? Well, it's alarmingly busy. Even though the screen is off and you might be snoring, apps are beaming out lots of information about, well, you, to companies you've never heard of. Your iPhone probably is doing the same thing, and Apple could be doing more to stop it. On a recent Monday night, a dozen marketing uh, companies, research firms, and other personal data guzzlers got reports from uh, every iPhone. At 11.43, one user in particular said a company called Amplitude uh, learned the telephone number, email, and exact location. At 3.58 a.m., another called App Boy uh, got a digital fingerprint of the uh, phone. At 6.25 a.m., a tracker called Dimdex received a, uh, a way to identify the phone and sent back a list of other trackers to pair with it. And all night long, there was some startling behavior by a household name, Yelp. It was receiving a message that included uh, the IP address of the phone once every five minutes. Our data has a secret life in many of the devices we use every day, from talking Alexa speakers to smart TVs. But we've got a giant blind spot when it comes to the data companies uh, probing the phones. You might assume you can count on Apple to sweat all the privacy details. After all, it touted in a recent ad... What happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. Well, the investigation suggests otherwise. iPhone apps, it has been discovered, uh, track your um, 
uh, passing information to third or pass it along to third parties just while you're asleep, including Microsoft OneDrive, Intuit's Mint, Nike, Spotify, The Washington Post, IBM's The Weather Channel, One App, the Crime Alert Service Citizen, shared personally identifiable information in violation of its published um, privacy policy. And your iPhone doesn't only feed data trackers uh, while you sleep. In a single week, one investigator encountered over 5,400 trackers, mostly in apps, not including the incessant Yelp traffic. According to privacy firm Disconnect, which helped test the iPhone, those unwanted trackers would have spewed out 1.5 gigabytes of data over the span of a month. That's half of an entire basic wireless service plan from AT&T. This is your data. Why should it even leave your phone? Well, why should it be collected by someone when you don't know what they're going to do with it? Says uh, a former National Security Agency researcher who is chief technology officer for Disconnect. He hooked the iPhone into special software so that they could examine the traffic. I know the value of data and I don't want mine in any hands where it doesn't need to be. Uh, He's told the uh, phone's owner. In a world of data brokers, uh, Jackson is the data breaker. He developed an app called Privacy Pro that identifies and blocks many trackers. If you have a little bit, uh, if you're a little bit techie, uh, it's recommended the free iOS version uh, to glimpse the secret life of your iPhone. I don't know what that says about the other versions of phone. Um, But yes, the trackers are a problem on phones running Google's Android, too. Google won't even let Disconnect's tracker protection software into its Play Store. A part of Jackson's objection to trackers is that many feed the personal data economy used to target us for marketing and political messaging. Facebook's fiascos have made us all more aware of how that data can be passed along, stolen and misused, but... Um, Cambridge Analytica was just the beginning, and apparently all of us are part of that ongoing um, exchange of information without our knowledge, and in many cases without our consent. Well, between eating out, paying for cable, maybe your phone, streaming services, receiving subscription boxes, and other superfluous spending, the average American spends $1,497 every month on non-essential items, according to new research. Now, you may disagree with what's essential and non-essential. That can be added up to $18,000 a year or more than a million dollars over the course of an adult lifetime. It can be um, good to treat yourself to something that brings you happiness, but a survey of 2,000 Americans found the average respondent does a bit more than that. Per month, results um, reveal that the average American spends $20 on coffee drinks, as well as $209 on dinners at restaurants, $189 going out for drinks with friends, uh, and there's uh, much, much more. They're paying an average of $91 per month for cable, in addition to $23 for streaming movies and television shows. Spending on music streaming services averaged about $22 a month. And, of course, this is the average. Some are paying much more, some much less, while other apps added about $23 a month. And while exercising is good for your health, the average American spends $73 a month on gym membership and exercise classes. There's Survey also revealed that Americans make on average of five impulse purchases a month for a total of $109, but the majority, 58%, also feel there are other important things they can't afford. Commissioned by Ladder and conducted by one poll in advance of National Life Insurance Day, which was way back on the 2nd of May, the survey looked at Americans spending on essential versus non-essential items and found that Americans may be able to afford essentials more easily than they think just by tweaking their spending habits.
I don't know if that includes your phone, but uh, something to think about. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. When we return, we're going to talk about the uh, disaster aid bill and why it didn't pass in the House. What are the objections and were they legitimate? That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. In this hour, we'll hear from Jerry Pattengale, author of The State of the Evangelical Mind, Reflections of the Past, Prospects for the Future. That's coming up later this hour. Well, a second House Republican blocked passage of a disaster aid bill on Tuesday, increasing the odds that lawmakers will have to wait until the chamber reconvenes from recess next week to send the measure to the president. Representative Thomas Massey objected to an attempt by Democrats to clear the $19.1 billion disaster aid package by unanimous consent during a pro forma session. The lawmakers first tried on Friday during another pro forma session. Most House members had left for the Memorial Day recess on Thursday. But freshman representative Chip Roy out of Texas objected to its passage on Friday, citing the $19 billion price tag and lack of funds requested by the Trump administration to help agencies dealing with migrants at the southern border. Well, during Tuesday's session, Massey objected, saying that Speaker Pelosi should have called a vote on this bill before sending every member of Congress on recess for 10 days. House Majority Leader, uh, uh, the House Majority Leader, urged Republicans without success not to object, and so it stands at this point. Well, here to explain uh, what all of this means and what's likely to happen next is Romina Bolcha. She is the director of the Grober M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. Well, first of all, let's talk about what it means um, Uh, to call for unanimous consent during a pro forma session. It basically means that that no member of Congress has to take an actual vote. They don't have to go on the record for how they would vote on this bill. Instead, it is assumed that everyone agrees um, to the bill. That, That means there's no debate, no more discussion, and basically, members of Congress aren't doing their jobs. It's like passing a bill on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Now, the Senate has already passed the bill. Had there been any prior debate among um, members of the House? Has there been anything that would justify fast-tracking this without the attendant debate, conversation, and so on that would typically precede a bill, particularly with a price tag of $19.1 billion? Yes, and keep in mind that $19 billion is going to be all deficit spending added onto the national credit card, which means that the actual burden of the spending will fall on younger and future generations who will be paying the interest on that $19 billion over their lifetimes. And yes, I do think that members of Congress and members of the House should do their jobs and have to take an actual vote on this bill and go on the record Um, that they think that it's justified or not to spend that much money in many ways on programs that are not targeted towards disaster assistance but represent mere slush funds. Uh, One particularly egregious example is the Community Development Block Grant Program, which should be zeroed out, eliminated, and instead it receives another $2.6 billion in this disaster aid package. So I applaud Representative Massey and Representative Roy for standing up for fiscal uh, responsibility, but also for accountability and transparency, making Congress actually take a vote on this bill and not just passing it by unanimous consent. Well, and they took quite a bit of flack from their own um 
party members for choosing to do so because they, I guess the idea was we're going to fast track this thing through. Now, it's likely that when um, the House is called back into session, and that's not until next Monday because they're still on their 10-day uh, recess, it's likely that it will pass, but it will do so uh, after some considerable debate and uh, also considering uh, some of what the uh, the president had also uh, requested to be a part of the, this uh, deliberation. Uh, yes, and I think that is exactly what should happen. And it's not like this bill is responding to an active emergency. Most of the funding is for rebuilding efforts, um, and some of it will likely go to uh, private entities and interests that may or may not have effect, been affected by any natural disaster. Like I said, the Community Development Block Grant Program is basically a slush fund. This bill has been debated and discussed for over five months now, which should give you one indication that using the emergency designation for this bill, which exempts it from spending caps and allows lawmakers to use the deficit, to use the national credit card, uh, to provide this additional spending um, is not a legitimate uh, a use of the emergency provision. It's supposed to be reserved for matters that are sudden, unexpected, not permanent, and not regular, and, um, and, and urgent. And this bill does not meet those criteria. So a couple of days to make members actually vote on it um, is, is, is not a big deal. But what is a big deal is that we're talking about um, adding to the national credit card to begin with, because there are many options for lawmakers to pay for this bill. Um, there are many other spending cuts they could take. They could reduce duplication and redundancy in the federal government. Uh, but they're choosing, again, to take the easy way out and just increase spending and put the bill on younger generations. And in the House, without the, the accountability that allows voters and constituents to look at uh, how their member voted, um, in in this uh, case. Now, my understanding is the president had objected to additional funding for Puerto Rico. Lawmakers reached a deal to include some $600 million in nutrition assistance for the uh, island territory in the disaster package, as well as some studies of the, uh, of the program as well for Puerto Rico uh, for the events that took place in 2017. Now, the Senate um, quickly passed this legislation, 85 to 8. That was on Thursday before adjourning for recess uh, why didn't the House also take it up at that at that time? Um, because they just assumed that there was unanimous uh, support for it and it would quickly go through during this recess? I don't know if the, what they assumed or didn't assume, but it is very clear that this is not the right way to make policy, that um, members are elected to do a job, and that job is to debate and vote on legislation. And that uh, wouldn't have happened if Representatives Roy and Massey hadn't objected to the unanimous consent request. And I think that's the least that taxpayers and constituents can expect from their members, that they actually take a vote and show the American people where they stand um, on this issue. And when it comes to Puerto Rico, yes, the Democrats were able to squeeze in additional money. The real problem with Puerto Rico is, is, is twofold. One, they don't collect their own taxes. Their government doesn't actually collect taxes on property or income. So that's why they continue to have shortfalls, because their government is not capable of collecting the taxes that they have on the And beyond that, there are so many structural changes that need to take place in the Puerto Rican labor market to allow their economy to flourish. Those should be the policies where we should see bipartisan consensus 
policies that will elevate the Puerto Rican people and will also enable their government to stand on its own two feet and actually collect tax revenue from its own constituents instead of relying on taxpayers on the mainland to continuously bail out the island. My understanding is there's going to be another attempt to pass this measure. Um, it will also be a, uh, excuse me, it will also be unanimous consent during a pro forma session. It's not likely to pass, although if a member uh, doesn't step forward and, and object to it, it, it could. Uh, are you anticipating that this will be taken up on Monday once the uh, members are back? And do you anticipate there will be vigorous debate about the important issues, beginning with the abuse of the uh, emergency designation uh, to to uh, do this kind of spending? And are you optimistic that we're likely going to see some kind of healthy conversation about um, this kind of uh, practice. I do hope that another member will raise an objection on Thursday, and it might just be Representative Massey again, who I understand is staying in town and uh, making a point of it that other lawmakers that are claiming that this is so important are not willing to cut their recess short and come back to Washington and actually um, do their job on this bill. Um, I do think if there is going to debate on Monday, I do think members will raise a number of points, including that there's no border funding uh, that the president has requested uh, in this bill and and that it's not paid for and um, why that is a a problem. The other part of it is actually it would extend the National Flood Insurance Program, its authority to borrow. That is a deeply debt-ridden program um, that is also causing many of these damages because it's incentivizing people to rebuild in the exact same flood-prone areas where the devastation occurred in the first place. And it's highly subsidized by federal taxpayers. And that is another area where we need fundamental reform and actual market-based insurance uh, instead of these continuous uh, crises and bailouts that have become, become so commonplace here in Washington. Well, we'll certainly watch with interest what's hap- what happens on Thursday and hopefully what will ultimately happen on, fr- on uh, Monday because they did wait and engage in uh, much-needed debate. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. We really appreciate it. Again, Romina Baccia is the director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. And by the way, I want to take just a moment to congratulate James Blend on the one-week anniversary of his birthday, which was actually last Wednesday. Uh, but because I was sick and we had radiothons and all kinds of stuff, I actually moved his birthday one week uh, and celebrated his birthday today. So I just want to say congratulations, James, on the one-week anniversary of your birthday um, glad you were born. Glad you're here. And um, I guess that's it. That covers it. We'll do the retrospective on your 50th. So you got a ways to go. Taking a look at uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk with Amy Wolf. She lives in Newburgh. Amy decided she wanted to communicate the love of Christ in a unique way. And it not only had an impact in her community, but all across the world. Now, what could she have done and what might you and I do to make that kind of an impact. Well, Amy's going to join me in studio tomorrow, and we're going to talk about her project uh, simply called Signs of Hope. And you might fill in the blanks in your own mind, but tomorrow we'll go into some detail about how this young woman decided, hey, I'm going to make a difference, and she did just that. (coughs) So looking forward to a conversation with Amy Wolf, and then on Friday we will lighten things up. Learn today that longtime pastor and uh, leader Randy Remington was elected yesterday yesterday. 
as the next president of the Foursquare Church. Now, I mention it because Randy Remington, of course, is the pastor of Beaverton Foursquare Church, has served there for a number of years, and he will now be the uh, the president of the Foursquare Church, the entire denomination. The election took place at Foursquare Connection 2019. It's currently being held at the Gaylord Opryland Resort and Convention Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, Corporate Secretary Adam Davidson announced that 3,446 licensed ministers and registered delegates voted by written ballot at the annual convention this after, or yesterday afternoon. All the ballots were tallied by an independent accounting firm, uh, they noted that um, they didn't have a political process. They had a holy process, distinguishing it from a simple business um, move. Immediately following the announcement, President presidential candidate Tammy Donahue said to uh, Randy, we love you, we believe in you, we welcome you as our president. And with emotion, he greeted the convention body, noting that Tammy is a woman of honor who has blazed trails. The crowd then gave Tammy an extended standing ovation. You might recall that the Foursquare denomination was founded by a woman, but has not been headed by a woman since. Asking, uh, after asking his Foursquare family for prayer during the coming year of transition, he added, It's humbling to be in this place. Thank you for the privilege. Well, President, current President uh, Glenn Burris Jr. prayed over Randy, anointing him with oil. We know the days ahead are filled with challenge and opportunity. We ask you to protect Randy and Sandy, Randy's wife, of course. Draw them close to you and prepare them for these days. Well, lead pastor of Beaverton Foursquare Church in Beaverton since 2003, Randy describes himself as optimistic about the body of Christ and the Foursquare Church because he loves its founder, Jesus. He also loves prayer. During the recent series of presidential forums, he pledged, if elected, to lead, model, and champion a culture of prayer. And although the church was birthed in a prayer meeting, he said it is also sustained through prayer. He cited the basement room under legendary Pastor Charles Spurgeon's pulpit. There, young people prepared for ministry by participating in prayers for support for Spurgeon. He didn't want to preach without the power of God at work, Randy said. Doesn't God respond to the prayers of his people? As a movement, we cannot strategize or fund our way to a move of God. It is a praying people that brings a move of God. Well, in addition to prayer, he also plans to work ceaselessly to unite the Foursquare family, saying the president must lead relationally to see that everyone feels networked, empowered, and included in the movement. He also plans to be radically committed to the Great Commission because the lost and the least uh, matter to Jesus. We must be concerned about them as well. Uh, he went on to say, well, the president has come to be the CMO, the chief missional officer. He commented earlier this year, that's the basis of our commitment. If we lose sight of that, we will just be committed to keeping this thing going. I want Christ's presence and fullness with us. President-elect uh, Randy Remington uh, said with regard to the position of president of the denomination, a one-time manual laborer, ranch hand, delivery driver after his call to ministry. He served as a youth pastor in Wyoming for three years and also as a short-term missionary to Jamaica. His relationship with Foursquare began more than three decades ago when he was invited to speak at a district youth camp. And while attending a Foursquare church the following weekend, he recalls the Holy Spirit said, You're home. This is the family where I'm placing you. I'm not just a pastor. I'm a Foursquare pastor, Randy says. That means something to me. It means I'm part of a family with a district, uh, with a distinct story, rather, that is still being written. I love our message. We are a Jesus church. We believe in the spirit and his dynamism. 
um, are working. Well, after the um, moving experience that marked his entry into Foursquare, Randy became youth pastor at New Hope Foursquare Church in Salem. He held that position for three years before becoming senior pastor at Stanwood Foursquare Church in Stanwood, Washington in 91. He spent three years in Stanwood before becoming senior pastor of New Life uh, Center, now New Life Church in Everett. That's their Foursquare Church there. Um, after nine years there, he became senior pastor of Beaverton Foursquare. In fact, he was handpicked um, by the beloved pastor uh, that so many were, were so sorry to uh, to see called home. But he was carefully chosen for that post. In addition to his pastoral service, Randy has been an active participant in Foursquare Life. Prior to his election, he had served on the Presidential Task Force, Missions Committee, District Advisory Council of the North Pacific District and Foursquare Cabinet. He's been the um, Puget Sound uh, Alaska District Supervisor, a divisional superintendent, and a member of many other boards and committees for the denomination. Randy and his wife, Sandy, have been married for uh, 30 years, have three adult sons, Joseph, Sam, and Thomas. The president-elect is going to spend up to a year shadowing the current president, Glenn Burris Jr., before assuming the duties of the presidency on the 1st of September 2020. His inauguration will take place during Foursquare Connection in 2020 in Denver, which will be in May. Um, so, uh, again, the, uh, the Portland pastor has been slated to head the denomination for the Foursquare Church. Congratulations to him, and I know that they've already... Uh, begun thinking about and making preparation for his replacement. But uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, the the Portland pastor has been chosen to lead up that denomination. If you think about Randy Remington and his family and Beaverton Foursquare as they're preparing for that transition, uh, please remember them in your prayers. Well, again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Amy Wolf. She is uh, a woman of... um, a vision, and she decided to make a difference first in her own community, and that has radiated out all across the globe. We'll talk with her about uh, that when she joins us. I want to thank James Blind, producer of today's program, and celebrating the one year and excuse me, the one week anniversary of his birthday, and Clark Hilton, the engineer of today's program. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.